Chapter Six of the Shortstop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Rowdy Delaney, Idaho, USA. The Shortstop by Zane Gray. Chapter Six. First Innings. When Chase left the grounds, his eyesight was still as blurred as it had been during the game, only now from a different source. His misery fell from him like a discarded cloak. He kept his hand deep in his right trouser pocket, clutching the twenty-five dollars, as if it were the only solid substance to give actuality to his dream of bliss. First he thought he would send all the money to his mother. Then he reflected that as he resembled the most ragged species of tramp, he must spend something for at least respectable clothing. He entered a second-hand store, where he purchased for the sum of five dollars a complete outfit, even down to the shoes and hat. It was not much on style, Chase thought, but clean and without a rip or hole. With this precious bundle under his arm, he set out to find the address given him by Mac, where he could obtain board and lodging at a reasonable rate. After some inquiry, he found the street and eventually the house, which, because of a much more pretentious appearance than he had supposed it would have, made him hesitate. But following a blindly grateful resolve to do anything and everything that Mac told him, he knocked on the door. It opened at once to show a matron of kindly aspect, who started somewhat as she saw him. Chase said he had been sent there by Mac, and told his errand, whereupon the woman looked relieved. "'Excuse me,' she replied. "'Come ride in. I have one rooms, a pretty nice one, four dollars a week.' She showed Chase a large room with four windows, a big white bed, a table and bureau, and chairs and a lounge, and with some difficulty managed to convey to him that he might have it and board for the sum of four dollars weekly. When he was certain she had not made a mistake, he lost no time in paying her for a week in advance. Good fortune was still such a stranger to him that he wanted to insure himself against moments of doubt. He washed and dressed himself with pleasure that had not been his for many a day. Quite diligently he applied the comb and brush Mrs. Obenwasser had so kindly procured. His hair was long and a mass of tangles, and it was full of cinders, which reminded him grimly of his dearly earned proficiency as a night rider on fast mail trains and slow freights. "'That's all over, thank heaven,' breathed Chase. "'I hope I can forget it but he knew he never would. When he backed away from the mirror and surveyed his clean face and neat suit, and saw therein a new chase, the last vanishing gleam of his doubt and unhappiness left him. The supper-bell, ringing at that moment, seemed to have a music of hope, and he went downstairs hungry and happy. Several young men at the table made themselves agreeable to him, introduced themselves as clerks employed downtown, and, incidentally, died in the wool baseball fans. Chase gathered that Mrs. Obenwasser was a widow of some means, and kept boarders more out of the goodness of her heart and pride in her table than from any real necessity. Chase ate like a famished wolf. 
Never had meat and biscuits and milk and pie been so good, and it was shame that made him finally desist, not satisfied appetite. After supper he got paper, pen, and ink from his landlady, and went to his room to write home. It came to him with a sudden shock that he had never written since he left. What could they have thought? But he hastened to write, for he had good news. He told Will everything, though he skimmed over it lightly, as if his vicissitudes were but incidents in the rise of a ball-player. He wrote to his mother, telling her of his good fortune, of the promise of the future, of his good health and spirits. Then he enclosed all his money, except a dollar or so in silver, in the letter and sealed it. Try as hard as he might, Chase could not prevent his tears from falling on that letter, and they were sealed up with it. Then he sallied forth to look for the post-office, and incidentally see something of Finley. He was surprised to find it a larger and more prosperous place than he had supposed. Main Street was broad, and had many handsome buildings. The avenues leading from it were macadamized and lined with maple-trees. Chase strolled around a block, and saw many fine brick residences and substantial frame houses with fine-covered, roomy porches and large lawns. Back on Main Street again, he walked along without aim. There was a hotel on the next corner, and a number of young men were sitting outside with chairs tilted back against the window, and also on the edge of the sidewalk. Chase had sauntered into the ken of his fellow-players. "'Say, fellers, will you get on to that?' It's Chase away. Hello, Chase, old sport. Come and have a drink. Dude Thatches, we can see your finish. Our new shortstop is some on the dress himself. He'll show you up. Would you mind dropping your lid over that lame blinker? I don't want to have the willies tonight. Then an incident diverted their attack on Chase. Someone kicked a leg of Enoch Winter's chair, and being already tipped far back, it overbalanced and let Enoch sprawl in the gutter whereupon the group howled with glee. "'Captain, what's her masser?' inquired Benny, trying to help Enoch to his feet, and falling over him instead. Benny was drunk. Slowly Enoch separated himself from Benny, and righted his chair and seated himself. "'Now ain't that funny?' he said. His slow, easy manner of speaking, without a trace of resentment, made Chase look at him. Enoch was captain of the team, and a man long past his boyhood. Yet there remained something boyish about him. He had a round face, and a round bullet head, cropped close, round gray eyes, wise as an owl's, and he had a round lump on his right cheek. As this lump moved up and down, Chase presently divined that it was only a puffed-out cheek over a quid of tobacco. He instinctively liked his captain, and when asked to sit down in a vacant chair near at hand, he did so, with the pleasant thought that at last he was one of them. Chase sat there for over an hour, intensely interested in all of them, in what they did and said. He felt sorry for Benny, for the second baseman was much under the influence of liquor, had a haggard face and unkempt appearance. The fellow called Dude Thatcher was a tall youth, good-looking, very quiet, and very well-dressed. Chase saw him flick dust off his shiny shoes, and more than once adjust his spotless cuffs. Meade was a typical ball-player, 
under twenty, a rugged and bronzed fellow of jovial aspect. Hicks would never see thirty again. There was gray hair over his temples. He was robust of build, and his hands resembled eagle's claws. He was a catcher, and many a jammed and broken finger had been his lot. What surprised Chase more than anything was the fact that baseball was not mentioned once by this group. They were extremely voluble, too, and talked on every subject under the sun except the one that concerned their occupation. Under every remark lay a subtle inflection of humor. Mild sarcasm and sharp retort and ready wit flashed back and forth. The left fielder of the team, Frank Havel by name, a tall, thin fellow with a pale, sanctimonious face, strolled out of the lobby and seated himself near Chase. And with his arrival came a series of most peculiar happenings to Chase. At first he thought mosquitoes or flies were bothering him. Then he imagined a wasp or hornet was butting into his ear. Next he made sure of only one thing, that something was hitting the side of his face and head. Whatever it was, he had no idea. It happened at regular intervals, and began to sting more and more. He took a sidelong glance at Havel, but that young man's calm, serious face disarmed any suspicion. But when Havel got up and moved away, the strange fact that the stinging sensation ceased to come caused Chase to associate it somehow with the quiet left fielder. "'Chase, did you feel anything queer when Havel was sitting alongside of you?' asked Winters. "'I certainly did. What was it?' "'Havel is a queer duck. He goes around with his mouth full of number ten shot, and he works one out on the end of his tongue and flips it off his front teeth. Why, the blame fool can knock your eye out. I've seen him make old bald-headed men crazy by sitting behind him and then shooting shot onto their bald spots. And he never cracks a smile. He can look anybody in the eye, and they can't tell he's doing it. But they can feel it blamed well. He sure is a queer duck, and you look out for your one good eye. Thank you. I will. But I have two good eyes. I can see very well out, out of the twisted one. Chase went to his room and to bed. Sleep did not come. His mind was too full. Too much had happened. The bed was too soft. He dozed off to start suddenly with the bump of a freight train in his ears. But when he did get to sleep, it was in a deep, dreamless slumber that lasted until ten o'clock the next morning. After breakfast, which Mrs. Obenwasser had kept waiting for him, he walked out to the ball-grounds to find the gates locked. So with morning practice out of the question, he returned to Main Street and walked toward the hotel. He saw Castorius sitting in the lobby. "'Hello, Chase. Now wouldn't this jar you?' he said in friendly tones, offering a copy of the Findlay Chronicle. Could this be the stalking monster that had roared at him yesterday and scared about the last bit of courage out of him? Cass laid a big freckled hand on the newspaper and pointed out a column. Mac gave Morris his walking papers yesterday, and Stanhope his notice. This is a good move, as these players cause dissension in the club. Now we look for the brace. Findlay has been laying down lately. Castorius's work yesterday is an example. We would advise him not to play that dodge any more. The new shortstop, Chaseaway, put the boots on everything that came his way. But for all that, we like his style. He is fast as lightning, and has a grand whip. 
he stands up like brothers, and if we're any judge of ball players, here we want to say we've always called the turn, this new youngster will put the kibosh on a few and chase the dude for batting honors. Chase read it over twice, and it brought the hot blood to his face. After that miserable showing of his in the game, how kind of the reporter to speak well of him. Chase's heart swelled. He had been wrong. There were lots of good fellows in the world. "'Make a fellow sick, wouldn't it?' said Cass in disgust. "'Accused me of laying down. "'Say, come and walk over to the hotel where the Kenton fellows are staying.' Chase felt very proud to be seen with the great pitcher, for whom all passers-by had a nod or a word. They stopped at another hotel, in the lobby of which lounged a dozen broad-shouldered, red-faced young men. "'Say,' said Cass, with a swing of his head, "'I just dropped in to tell you guys that I'm going to pitch today, "'and I'm going to let you down with two hits, see?' "'A variety of answers were flung at him, "'but he made no reply and walked out. "'All the way up the street, Cass heard him growling to himself. "'The afternoon could not come soon enough for Chase. "'He went out to the grounds in high spirits. "'When he entered the dressing-room, "'he encountered the same derisive clamor "'that had characterized the player's manner toward him the day before.' and it stunned him. He looked at them aghast. Every one of them, except Cass, had a scowl and a hard word for him. Benny, not quite sober yet, was brutal, and Meade made himself particularly offensive. Even Winters, who had been so friendly the night before, now said that he would put out Chase's other lamp if he played poorly today. They were totally different from what they had been off the field. A frenzy of some kind possessed them. Roars of laughter following attacks on him, and for that matter on each other, detracted little in Chase's mind from the impression of unnatural sarcasm. He hurriedly put on his uniform and got out of the room. He did not want to lose his nerve again. Cass sat on the end of the bleachers, pounding the boards with his bat. "'Say, I was waiting for you,' he said in a whisper to Chase. "'I'm going to put you wise when I get a chance to talk.' All I want to say now is, I'll show up this Kenton outfit today. They can't hit my speed, and they always hit my slow ball to left field, through short. Now you lay for them. Play deep and get the ball away quick. You've got the arm for it. This was Cass's way of showing his friendship, and it surprised Chase as much as it pleased him. Matt came along then, and at once said, Howdy, boys. Cass, what are you dressed for? I want to work today. You do? What for? Well, I'm sore about yesterday, and I'm sore on Kenton, and if you'll work me today, I'll shut them out. You're on, Cass. You're on, said Mac, rubbing his hands in delight. That's the way I want to hear you talk. We'll break our losing streak today. Then Mac pulled Chase aside, out of earshot of the other players pouring from the dressing room, and said, Lad, are you going to take coaching? I'll try to do everything you tell me, replied Chase. Sure, that's good. Listen, I'm going to teach you the game. Don't ever lose your nerve again. Got that? Yes. When you're in the field with a runner on any base, make up your mind before the ball's hit what to do with it if it should happen to come to you. Got that? Yes. Play deep at short unless you're called in. Come in fast on slow-hit balls. Use an underhand snap throw to second or first when you haven't lots of time. Got that? Yes. When the ball is hit or thrown to any baseman, run with it, 
to back up the player. Got that? Yes. All right. So far, so good. Now as to hittin'. I like the way you stand up. You're a natural-born hitter, so stand your own way. Don't budge an inch on the speediest pitcher as ever threw a ball. Learn to dodge wild pitches. Wait. Watch the ball. Let him pitch. Don't be anxious. Always take a strike if you're first up. Try to draw the base on balls. If there's a runners on base, look for a sign from me on the bench. If you see my scorecard sticking out anywhere in sight, hit the first ball pitched. If you don't see it, wait. Turn around, easy-like, you know, and take a glance my way after every pitched ball. And when you get the sign, hit. We played the hit-and-run game. If you're on first, or any base, look for the same sign from me. Then you'll know what the batter is up to, and you'll be ready. Hit and run. Got that? Yes, I think so. Well, don't get rattled even if you make a mistake. And never, never mind errors. Go after everything and dig it out of the dust if you can. But never mind errors. And Chase, wait, called Mac as the eager youngster made for the field. Then, in a whisper, as if he were half afraid some of the other players would hear, he went on. Don't sass the umpire. Don't ever speak to no umpire. If you get a rotten deal on strikes, slam your bat down, puff up, look mad, do anything to make a bluff, but don't sass the umpire. See? I never will, declared Chase. The Finley team came on the ground showing the effects of the shake-up. They were an aggressive, stormy aggregation. Epithets, the farthest removed from complimentary, flew thick and fast as the passing balls. A spirit of rivalry pervaded every action. In batting practice, he who failed to send out a clean, hard hit received a volley of abuse. In fielding practice, he who fumbled a ball, or threw too high or too low, was scornfully told to go out on the lots and play with the kids. It was a merciless warfare, every player for himself, no quarter asked or given. Chase fielded everything that came his way, and threw perfectly to the bases, but even so, the players, especially Meade, vented their peculiar spleen on him as well as on others who made misplays, all of which did not affect Chase in the least. He was on his mettle. His blood was up. The faith Mac had shown in him should be justified. That he vowed with all intensity of feeling, of which he was capable. The gong sounded for the game to start, and Castorius held forth in this wise. "'Fellows, I've got everything today. Speed, well say. It's come back. And my floater? Why, you can count the stitches. You stiffs get in the game. If you're not a lot of cigar signs, there won't be anything to it.' Big and awkward as Cass was in citizen dress, in baseball harness, he was an admirable figure. The crowds in the stands had heard of his threat to the Kentons, for of all gossip that in baseball circles flies the swiftest, and were out in force and loud enthusiasm. The bleachers idolized him. As the players went for their positions, Cass whispered a parting word to Chase. When you see my floater go up, get on your toes. The umpire called play, threw out a white ball, and stood in expectant posture. As Cass faced the first Kenton player, he said in low voice, "'Look out for your cocoa.' Then he doubled up like a contortionist, and undoubled to finish his motion with an easy, graceful swing. With wonderful swiftness, the white ball traveled straight for the batter's head. Down he went, flat, jumped up with red face, and yelled at Cass. 
The big pitcher smiled derisively, received the ball from the catcher, and with the same violent effort delivered another ball, but with not half the speed of the first. The batter had instinctively stepped back. The umpire called the ball a strike. "'Fraid to stand up, hey?' inquired Cass, in the same low, tantalizing voice. When he got the ball again, he faced the batter, slowly lifted his long left leg, and seemed to turn with a prodigious step toward third base, at the same time delivering the ball to the plate. The ball evidently wanted to do anything but reach its destination. Slowly it sailed, soared, floated, for it was one of Cass's floaters. The batter half swung his bat, pulled it back, then poked at the ball helplessly. The result was an easy grounder to Chase, who threw the runner out. It was soon manifest to Chase that Cass worked differently from any pitcher he had ever seen. Instead of trying to strike out any batters, Cass made them hit the ball. He never threw the same kind of ball twice. He seemed to have a hundred different ways for the ball to go, but he always vented his scorn on his opponents in the low sarcasm which may have been heard by the umpire, but was inaudible to the audience. At the commencement of the third inning, neither side had yet scored. It was Chase's first time up, and as he bent over the bats, trying to pick out a suitable one, Cass said to him, "'Say, kid, this guy'll be easy for you. Wait him out. Let his curve ball go.' Chase felt perfectly cool when he went up. The crowd gave him a great hand, which surprised but did not disconcert him. He stood square up to the plate, his left foot a little in advance. He watched the Kenton pitcher with keen eyes. He watched the motion. He watched the ball as it sped towards him, rather high and close to his face. He watched another, a wide curve, go by. The next was a strike, the next a ball, and then, following, another strike. Chase had not moved a muscle. The bleachers yelled, "'Good eye, old man! Hit her out now!' With three and two, Chase lay back and hit the next one squarely. It rang off the bat, a beautiful liner that struck the right-field fence a few feet from the top. Chase reached third base, overran it, to be flung back by Cass. The crowd roared. Winters, the captain, came running out and sent Cass to the bench. Then he began to coach. "'Look out, Chase. Hold your base on an infield hit. Play it safe. Play it safe. Here's where we make a run. Here's where we make a run. Here's where we make a run. Hey, there!' Pitcher, you're up in the air already. Oh, what we won't do to you. Steady, Chase. Now you're off. Hit it out, old man. That's the eye. Make it good. Mugs Landing. Irish Stew. Lace Curtains. Razpataz. Oh, my. Bawling at the top of his voice, spitting tobacco juice everywhere, with wild eyes and sweating face, Winters hopped up and down the coaching line. When Benny put a little fly back of second, Winters started chase for the plate and ran with him. The ball dropped safe, and the run scored easily. When Chase went panting to the bench, Max screwed up his stubby cigar and gazed at his new find with enraptured eyes. I guess maybe that hit didn't bust our losing streak. Whatever Chase's triple had to do with it, the fact was that the Findlay players suddenly recovered their batting form. For two weeks they had been hitting atrociously, as Max said, and now every player seemed to find hits in his bat. Thatcher tore off three singles, Cass got two and a double, and the others hit in proportion. 
Chase wrapped another against the right field fence, hitting a painted advertisement that gave a pair of shoes to every player performing that feat, and to the delirious joy of the bleachers and stands, at his last time up, he put a ball over the fence for a home run. It was a happy custom of the oil men of Finley, who devoted themselves to the game, to throw silver dollars out of the stand at the player making a home run. A bright shower of this kind completely bewildered Chase. He picked up ten, and Cass handed him seven more that had rolled in the dust. "'A suit of clothes goes with that hit, me boy,' sang out Cass. It was plainly a day for Chase and Cass. The Kenton players were at the mercy of the growling pitcher. When they did connect with the ball, sharp fielding prevented safe hits. Chase had eleven chances, some difficult, one particularly being a hard bounder over second base, all of which he fielded perfectly. But on two occasions, fast, tricky base runners deceived him, bewildered him, so instead of throwing the ball, he held it. These plays gave Kenton the two lonely runs chalked up to their credit against seventeen for Findlay. "'Well, we'll give you those tallies,' Cass said, swaggering off the field. He had more than kept his threat, for Kenton had made but one safe hit. "'Wheeling tomorrow, boys,' he yelled in the dressing-room. "'We'll take three straight. Say, did any of you cheap skates see my friend Chase hit today? Did you see him? Oh, I guess he didn't put the wood on a few. I guess not. Over the fence and far away. That one is going yet.' Chase was dumbfounded to hear every player speak to him in glowing terms. He thought they bitterly resented his arrival, and they had. Yet here was each one warmly praising his work, and in the next breath they were fighting among themselves. Truly these young men were puzzles to Chase. He gave up trying to understand them. A loud uproar caused him to turn. The players were holding their sides with laughter, and Cass was doing a highland fling in the middle of the floor. Mac looked rather white and sick. This struck Chase as remarkable after the decisive victory, and he asked the nearest player what was wrong. Oh, nothing much. Mac only swallowed his cigar stub. It was true, as could plainly be seen from Mac's expression. When the noise subsided, he said, Sure I did. Was it any wonder? Seeing this dead bunch come back to life was enough to make me swallow my umbrella. Boys, here a smile lighted up his smug face. Now we've got that hole plugged it short. The pennant is ours. We've got em skinned to a frazzle. End of chapter 6